The text today is in Nehemiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. You may be seated. <clears throat> Welcome, everybody. It's so good to see everyone this morning. Thank you, Gershon and Brian and Mandy, for leading us in worship today. Um, just uh, uh, Brian and Gershon are from Christ Community Church. They've been so generous in helping us when we need some assistance. So thanks, guys. You guys really led us well. I want to remind us all, too, um, just if you desire to make more connections here at Refuge Church, just to get to know people better, we have some small groups um, that everyone's welcome to join us on. Wednesday night, we do prayer at 7 p.m., um, right here in the, uh, in the chapel or in that room, depending on the size of our group. And sometimes people might be intimidated by a prayer group. We, we don't ask, we don't make anyone pray out loud. Um, we kind of abandoned the go around in the circle thing. You know, so it's just, if you pray out loud and you want to, that you can do that. If you want to pray by yourself, you can do that too. But, um, you know, I've, I've heard it said popularly, the church that um, prays together stays together. You know, so it's a very, very important um, thing for us to do. On Wednesday nights, we pray. Um, also, Saturday morning, um, if you're a dude um, and you want to hang out with other dudes, um, we have a men's group that meets um, right in the kids' room over there. It's a lot of fun. We play with the toys, and, um, you know, like, so, sometimes we, we talk about Jesus. Every, every week we talk about Jesus. That's a lot of fun. We can do that, too. And Pastor Creaney actually preaches, um, teaches a, a Bible study um, in Fall River as well. That's kind of like a um, rotating schedule, but you can contact him if you ever want to go to that. These are just ways that you can connect with other Christians and you know, different things that we do around here. So that's exciting. I want to um, open up, too, with a quick word of prayer, just for someone um, who was recently in an accident. So if you could just join me, please. God, we want to lift up to you uh, Justin, um, who was recently in a motorcycle accident and who is in the ICU, uh, the co uh, um, basically a cousin of just a dear sister who attends here regularly. regularly. God, we ask that you would um, heal him, um, that you would heal his body um, from this just severe accident. God, would you just uh, send um, your, uh, your health and your power towards him right now? Um, we ask, Lord, that you would use this event in his life and the life of his family uh, to be led by, um, in faith to Jesus Christ. God, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I only had read two verses this morning. I know we're used to having read sometimes a lot more than that, so Joe lucked out. Um, but um, we're, we're getting close to the end of our series in the book of Nehemiah. And um, I only used my corny joke once, if you remember that Nehemiah is the shortest prophet, because he was only knee-high. So I, now, now I used it twice. Um, the world-famous Louvre Museum is in Paris, France. Never been there. Uh, maybe some of, has anyone ever been here and there in this room? Ever, anyone? Oh, really? Good, good for you, Rose. But yeah, so the world-famous Louvre Museum is in Paris, France. And at the Louvre, you can visit artifacts, actually, from the palace of King Darius, who is the king of Persia, the very king that Nehemiah um, was the cupbearer to. And there, 
there are um, artifacts there that are stunning to see, even in picture form. I looked them up online. Anyone can Google image them and see just amazing artifacts, artistry, uh, columns of wood supported by these enormous, ornately sculpted bulls. They just built things differently back then, don't you think? Um, beautiful artifacts and sculptures and carvings. One after another just shows how massive and how stunning and opulent was the palace of King Darius, the very palace that Nehemiah served the king. Now, Nehemiah was in Persia. Um, if, you don't, if you don't recall, Darius' palace was in Persia. Persia was the leading empire and superpower of the world at the time. Now, compare this, the, just the wealthiest place on earth, compare this to like modern-day Qatar or Singapore or Luxembourg, even the United States, the grandest, richest, and most populated place on earth. James Hamilton commented on it. Everything that mattered was happening in Persia, <clears throat> and especially in the palace of King Darius. Education, entertainment, commerce, artistry, engineering. It's where you wanted to be if you wanted to be a person of learning or a person of wealth. What was it like, you think, in Nehemiah's mind to be in the center of all that pomp and circumstance, not only at the center of it, but ground zero, he lived in the palace with Darius himself, to leave all this and go to Jerusalem. Now, you might be imagining Solomon's Jerusalem, coated with gold and amazing opulence, just the same as perhaps Persia's, but not in Nehemiah's day. It was a deserted city, with broken down walls and piles of rubble and nobody lived there. It was destroyed, leveled to the ground. Now imagine leaving this most impressive place on earth for this. What motivated Nehemiah to do this? To leave a place of power and significance and wealth to a dump. <laughs> but don't you know that it's oftentimes in the broken down dumps of life that God begins to work? He begins to move in us and do amazing things. Oh, there you go. That's the end of the sermon. <laughs> That's the first time I've ever done that, I think. Oh, this is going to be all out of order now. That's why sometimes you memorize things. <laughs> all right, I need a minute. Okay. Everyone take a break. <laughs> All right, that's the end. I should now, from now on, this is how you learn. From now on, I'm going to number the pages. Because <laughs> I don't number them. Okay, I'm getting there. All right, that's that. Goodness. Oh, yeah, here we go. All right. I think I got it. This is going to be all out of order. <laughs> okay. Now I'm sweating. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you guys don't care, right? Okay. So here we go. It's oftentimes in the, in the broken down dumps of life that God begins to work in us, doesn't he? 
Now think about this with um, God calling scrawny David over his strong and and tall older brothers. Um, In Jerusalem, the temple had been rebuilt. The walls had been erected. Yet no one occupied the city. And who would blame them? And this is from time to time is where the church is. God's rescued people finds herself seemingly insignificant, small, powerless. But such is never the case, friends. Though the seed may still be in the soil, what's being prepared is the presentation of Christ's marvelous kingdom. And today God is still building his people. He's still calling you and I to gather together to occupy our city to be his people in this world. No matter how small or irrelevant we might seem. And sometimes that's the way the church is starting to seem in our world, isn't it? Perhaps a bit small or irrelevant or insignificant. Our text covers almost two chapters. I only, I only read two verses for you. It's pretty much a list of names. Um, that's why I only read two verses for you. Because for two chapters, it lists through all these names. A bunch of ordinary people that lived a long time ago. And they're the same people, if you recall the, the flow of Nehemiah, they're the, they're the same people that rebuilt the walls in chapters 1 through 6, who gathered and heard the, the scriptures read in chapters 7 through 8, and by the hearing of God's word, <clears throat> confessed their sins in chapter 9. They realized that, he, that they had turned from God, sinned against God, so they con- started confessing their sins. And th- then in chapter 10, they make a solemn covenant to follow God, to make a change, to be different. And now they're putting their money where their mouth is. They're moving in. They're going back to Jerusalem, back to this God-forsaken city where nobody lived. Friends, there's no ordinary Christians. Here are all these people, ordinary type of people, just like you and I, just their names on a page, but heroes. We don't hear much of their stories. You know, you hear a lot about King David. You hear a lot about Moses. There's all of these stories, but... In, this, in these two chapters, go home and read the rest of it, you're just going to see a lot of names. <clears throat> I, I imagine, though, that they don't really care much. I don't, I don't know that they really care all that much, that they're, they're not listed and their, their individual stories aren't told. I, I would imagine they're probably more like John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist's confession in the New Testament. He said, I am not the Christ. You know what he meant by that? This whole thing is not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. I don't need my story told. I need Jesus' story told. And I need to follow him faithfully. Right? I am not the Christ. What else does he say? He must increase. And I must decrease. My life needs to be about Jesus Christ. So what matters to these ordinary people, I kind of imagine them being a lot like us, just kind of ordinary, working types of people. What mattered to them was not that their names were written into the holy canon of Scripture. Imagine that, your name's in the book. But that they were in God's family. That's what mattered. They stepped up to his call. And if you're in the family of God, friend, what you do matters. You are not ordinary. You're not ordinary. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ... You are not ordinary. You are extraordinary. All, all of us. Incredible. I want to explain to us three components <clears throat> of the extraordinary life. The challenge, 
the motivation, and the benediction. Those are our basic three points. The challenge, the motivation, and the benediction. Let's, look, let's first look at the challenge to living this sort of extraordinary life, to make hard decisions to follow Christ. It says in verse 11, as, as you recall, now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. <clears throat> the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem. Pretty straightforward. It'd be safe to say that many Israelites that were living in the suburbs at the time didn't really want to go back to Jerusalem. Maybe that's kind of like our day, too. You know, we've, when we're young, we live in the city, we get old, older, we get a job that pays more, we move out, right? So it's, it's not that much different probably for them, too. And so it's safe to say that those Israelites living in the suburbs around Jerusalem probably didn't want to move back to the city of Jerusalem itself, it's sort of implied by the fact that they needed to cast lots, right? It, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but sometimes when you're calling on people to volunteer for a thing, you ask them, can you raise your hand for me? And nothing is more awkward than when nobody raises their hands. And now you've got to start picking people at random, right? That's what happened all the time when I asked the teenagers who wanted to pray um, to, to, close, to close the service. So there probably wasn't this kind of long line of people eager to move into Jerusalem. And this more than likely had to basically do with the safety and economy that would, would come with moving there. Jerusalem had just been rebuilt. Now, just consider this. This is their challenge at the time. Why would anyone move there? No doubt she had inferior defense, meager artillery to hold up against some marauding army that just wanted to make a name for themselves. A new city was a sitting duck. They could clearly just kind of take it over. So this newly re rebuilt city more than likely would have been ground zero for an attack, not the suburbs. And it's like that today. Some of us kind of maybe in the, in the difficulty of the world and the danger of the world that we live in, we might take solace that we don't live in Boston or New York City, right? Because we kind of know who's going to go after Somerset, right? Or Warren, you know? Like, so, so it's like that then too. Cities were a target. But not only that, what's more, the city would have been provided... <clears throat> would have provided less land for people to own and to keep, which basically was most of the time was people's economy back then. <clears throat> so many people in that day relied on like large parcels of land for their flocks or for their crops. So it, would have been it, would, it wouldn't have been economical for people to move into the city. And friends, if God has called us to have faith in Jesus Christ, there's always going to be some challenge to it. There's always going to be a risk, something that we know that we're going to lose, even. You can't come to Christ with full hands. And Jesus, friends, Jesus reminds us of this in the Gospels. Oh, and this is helping me kind of know what page I'm on now. <laughs> Jesus said, looking at him... Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess. Give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. What's Jesus telling? You, you guys remember this story, the rich young ruler? Jesus, I want to follow you. What's the cost of this? And Jesus says, okay, you want to follow me? Here's what you need to do. Sell everything that you have. Give it all to the poor and you'll have treasures in heaven. You guys maybe remember the story. Come follow me, Jesus says. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much. 
You see, when Jesus calls us to salvation, he calls us to drop what's in our hands. He calls us to turn and follow him. And that can be hard, can't it? Because, oh, we love our things. We love they shine and they glitter. We love our money and our possessions and our sex. All these different things that we value. But Jesus says, drop them, follow me. When Jesus calls you to his family, he bids us to come and die. Those are hard words, but you you read the Gospels, and over and over again, Jesus says them. No no one can come and follow me unless he take up his cross. So more and more in our day, Christianity is becoming, isn't it becoming kind of like a bewildering, to the world around us, people view Christians as sort of bewildering or superstitious, regressive types of people. We're kind of, we're, we're over the, the, as the decades pass, at least in the United States, we're becoming more misfits in our culture, kind of odd ducks. And I don't know that I disagree. <laughs> but this is kind of what's happening. To, to come out of the, that proverbial Christian closet is really like, it's met with this just kind of like polite, like unspoken, oh, okay, so you chose that life. Okay, good for you. Good for you. You know, we all have the right to our own opinion. And people, uh, that, that's the, like the nicest reply that you'll get. And sometimes it's a lot more hostile. So it can, it can also mean quitting certain industry. You know, you come to faith in Jesus and you realize, wow, I can't even be in the career I'm in anymore. Because it requires some kind of sinful activity that you know you need to leave. Turning down a job or selling your home, living on less to care for those less fortunate around you. And friends, we have it easy. You think we have it tough as Christians. We have it easy. Many Christians in the world today still live under the impending threat of martyrdom. Imagine. You know, a lot of times we just kind of live in our, in our American type of version of Christianity, and we think that's just a thing of a thousand years ago. But people to this day still suffer and die for their faith in Jesus Christ. So why, why do any of us do this? Give up the perceived prosperity of Persia and move into dumpy Jerusalem. Why do we do this? What's our motivation? There's a phrase perhaps that you might have breezed over or maybe your ears just kind of sort of missed it when the text was being read. The Israelites were asked to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. Live in Jerusalem, the holy city. Now, is this kind of just like religious language, spooky type of stuff? What's going on here? It might seem a bit obscure, but the fact that it was called a holy city is very important, so don't miss it. The word holy, you guys know what this means. I've told you this before. It means separate. It means distinct. It means set apart. What is so separate? What's so distinct? What's so set apart about Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem in the Old Testament was where the temple was located. The temple was a very big building in the Old Testament where the presence of God literally rested upon. All over the Old Testament, you see this happening many times. The presence of God, the glory of God himself, described like a cloud or pillar of fire, rests in the temple. We see him rest on Mount Sinai with Moses. Then when Moses builds like a traveling version of the temple, it's called the tabernacle. It's like a tent 
the same thing, that pillar of cloud rests in the temple. And then when uh, King Solomon finishes the actual physical structure of the temple, that that same glory cloud rests in the temple. The temple in Jerusalem was where the presence of God was. That's why Jerusalem was called holy, separate, distinct, because Yahweh, the God of creation, the God of heaven and earth, lived there. Now, if you're not a a Christian or a person of faith, this might seem like a little, little bit of hocus pocus to you. It might seem superstitious. But friend, if there's a God, and that God can reveal himself to us, Scripture tells us that in this context, at the time of Nehemiah and Moses and all these men, this is how God revealed himself to his people in this cloud. So these Israelites who volunteered to live in Jerusalem, remember in verse 2, they did so not because they were seeking out some earthly prosperity, but because they believed Psalm chapter 16. And this is what Psalm chapter 16 says. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. They knew something, that rubble Jerusalem with Yahweh is better than all the riches of Persia. There's more joy, there's more pleasure, there's more peace. They had eyes to see the kingdom of God. It didn't matter if it lived in dinky David and not his tall older brother that was handsome and strong, you see? Because God doesn't operate the same way we operate. Jerusalem was about the kingdom of God. It's where God was. It was the center of his program. And everyone that volunteered to move there were putting his program before their own desires and agenda. Can we say that about ourselves as God's church? Do we really believe that the church of Jesus Christ, the local church, is the embodiment, the new temple of God himself? And that where his people gather are where His riches are found and the fullness of joy is found and pleasures forevermore. You see, the Old Testament version of the New Testament version of what we find in the Old Testament temple is the local church. The gathered people of God who have put faith in Jesus Christ who hold up his gospel and word. Do we really believe this? So Jerusalem was about the kingdom of God. And friends, the church is about this same kingdom. It's where God is. It's where the center of his program and and all those people who volunteered to move into the city were putting that program above their agenda rather than living in the safety and security of an earthly home. They had their desire and their eyes set on a better home. These kind of ordinary people are the ones that Scripture testifies about. Hebrews 11. You guys know Hebrews 11? Oh, I love Hebrews 11. Let's read it. All these, not the whole thing, just the part. (laughs) All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. From a distance. They saw it from, what do we see from a distance? The return of Christ. His kingdom come on earth. 
That's what we see from a distance. Admitting that they were foreigners and sojourners on this earth, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. You see, if we have eyes to see, friends, we're going to see that the pretty face that we're chasing after sinfully is not better than the kingdom of God to come. It's not. It's not better than Jesus Christ. It's not better than the pleasures that are at his right. The only thing that will motivate our sinful hearts to follow Christ and to shed sin is to believe that. It's the only thing. So when everyone, for anyone who ever calls themselves Christians are faced with some impending loss of earthly treasure, they're e- either going to run from Christ like the rich young ruler, or they're going to continue on because they're convinced that they're strangers here. And there awaits for us a better home, a better crown, a better country, a better bridegroom. And oh, they say with Paul, that the Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. An eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Oh, friends, to be extraordinary, that's the only thing you need to do. You need to remember that there is an eternity coming with Christ. It's our power to commit ourselves to each other, to stay when it gets tough and people get ugly, right? It's our power to be committed to the Word of God and to Jesus. The presence of God, like I said, it's no longer in a temple. It's in you and I. Anyone who has turned from their sin and put their faith in Christ has become a temple of the living God. The house of God himself. Oh, what a glory. And God today is gathering his people and making another list. You see, in Nehemiah 11 and 12, there's a list of all the people that were called out by God to be his people and to occupy Jerusalem. And today there's another list being made. And it's got simple people like you and I on it. People who love Jesus Christ, who have turned from our sin, put faith in him. There's another list being made. He's calling out for himself a people to be separate, to be holy, to be distinct, saved by his grace. And for now, his kingdom is the gathered church. That's what it is on this earth. His presence is the gathered church. His power is the gathered church. His word is given to us and protected by the gathered church. His gospel and vision is set forth by the gathered church. The ultimate motivation in bearing the costs of moving out of rich, opulent Persia and going to dumpy Jerusalem 
Jesus spelled it out for us in a prayer in John 17. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. You know, you might be going through a lot this morning, maybe going through a divorce or through a sickness, but do you know if you have turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, one day you're going to be with him where he is. And that's so much better. That's what Paul meant by a momentary light affliction is not to be compared with the eternal weight of glory prepared in that city that Jesus Christ lives in this moment. The challenge, the motivation, the benediction. A benediction is a pronouncement of blessing. I don't even know that I need to say this point after the last one. It's a pronouncement of blessing. The text says, and the people blessed. Did you hear all that in the text? And the people blessed all of that long list of all the people who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. The people blessed them. In Greek, it's a Greek word, makarios. Blessing, happiness, joy, not because of your circumstances, but because of God in your life. That's what blessing means. It's a common principle in Scripture that when God's people turn from their sin and sacrifice earthly pleasure and security because of their kingdom vision, that a blessing is pronounced on their life. A rich blessing by the Holy Spirit rests on you. God transforms your gloom like noonday. And the clouds of despair lift. And words of blessing come to us from God in heaven. The Father in heaven, imagine this, affirms you and applauds you and equips you. When you have this deep faith, you get a holy epitaph, a divine eulogy proclaimed on the great company of heaven. You know, in, three, in Nehemiah chapter 11, we didn't read this part, but three times all of these people on this list are called valiant. Valiant men, valiant men, valiant men. Courageous heroes. Courageous, you want to be a courageous hero? You don't just need to rescue a cat from a tree, right? You want to be a courageous hero? Follow God, live for God, live for the better city. And there are no, because there are no ordinary people in that better city. You think, well, I'm just a bum plumber, or I'm just a, a garbage man. Well, friends, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be a servant of all. You know, it's not the evangelists, it's not the pastors, it's not these people that get the most accolades from Jesus Christ. It's people who had a servant heart, and you can, it's, you can slap a title on anyone and have that. Anyone who has separated their lives to serve Jesus in his world, not just missionaries, not just pastors, musicians and janitors and moms and seniors and deacons and the people that clean our gross toilets, right? Like, and vacuum our floors. Extraordinary. When someone says that I'm living for a kingdom and not for myself because he must increase and I must decrease, I am not the Christ. We lay down our lives for King Jesus. And we might not receive glory in this life, but we will in the next. Glory without end. Isn't that great news? Isn't that super? And you know that Jesus is the archetype of all this? The example, I mean. 
He is the one. You guys recall this in Philippians chapter 2 in the New Testament. He left his earthly home. He took on the form of a man, a bondservant, and took on our sin and died for us. He, la- he left the greatest Persia ever made for dinky earth, broken by sin and death. And here we, he, co- he came to us. He's the one that left his Persia. You see what I mean? He came down to this earth, took on death, took on servanthood for us, took on, us, on our sin for us, and died on a bloody cross for us. Forsaken, mocked, beaten, crucified, left in God-forsaken darkness. The only person, because of Jesus Christ, will never have to hear the words that he heard, will never have to say the words that he heard. Father, forgive, not not those words, um, the the forsaken part. (laughs) I didn't write this down. This is why I need notes. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You're never, if you put faith in Jesus Christ, you're never going to hear those words. Isn't that good news? You're never going to hear those words. If you haven't put faith in Jesus Christ, why on earth wouldn't you turn to him this moment, trust in Jesus, and never be forsaken by God in heaven, embraced as a son, actually, or a daughter? Never forsaken by the one the only one you need to be accepted by. And Jesus Christ, the greatest example of someone who would leave such great wealth and power to this earth and took on human form and took on death itself, yet for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy set before him. You see, if your joy is not set before you, you'll never endure the cross. If your joy is your money or your friends or cookouts or jobs, things like this, girlfriends, boyfriends. If that's your joy, you're not going to endure the cross. You're, you're going to leave your faith the moment you have to sacrifice any of those things for it. But when, your joy, when your, the joy is set before you, those things just kind of fall off. You are delighted to obey the word of God because of the, the city awaiting you. I want to ask um, what list your name might be on this morning. Are you a member of God's family? You know you can be. Are you a member of the redeemed? Are you among the redeemed? Do you know that there's a God in heaven who made you? That you, you were created in his image? And, and that you, God created you, And that you, and like me, and like everyone in this room, scorned him and sinned against him. Even though he prepared this world for us to live in perfect relationship with him, we sinned against him. We worshipped other gods. We turned our backs on him. We worshipped his created thing over the creator. And because of this, scripture says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Come and get it. Turn from your sin, trust in Jesus, and get eternal life. Get eternal life. I hope that that's you this morning. Acknowledge it before your holy God that you you have sinned against him, that he is angry at that sin, but he also loves you. As ironic as that may sound, he sent his son to die for his, to satisfy his own anger. 
Turn in faith and trust the death of Christ this morning. Be, reuni be reunited to your God, your King, your Lord. Can you join me in prayer, please? Dear God, I thank you, Lord, for this morning. I thank you, God, that you are with us. Lord, that the people of God gathered who have been blessed with your Holy Spirit are present, and you are present with us. God, I thank you, Lord, that you have given us the honor to know each other, to hold each other accountable, to be the church, to be the local church. I thank you that your word was sung this morning and preached this morning. And God, I pray, Lord, that whatever about your word might have been confusing and that might have been quite a bit this morning, <laughs> that you would simplify it and clarify it. If anything that was said was incorrect, that it would be quickly forgotten. And God, whatever that was said was true, that it would be applied and transformative and would change our lives. God, I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here that does not know Jesus Christ, and I was maybe speaking to you a moment ago, would you turn from your sin and trust him? And enter in by grace through faith. You're saved. Your sins are forgiven because of Jesus died on the cross for them in your place. The angry wrath of God towards your sin was put on Jesus. And if you trust in Jesus, that wrath won't be put on you. Turn to him this moment. Trust him. Follow him. And there will be laid up for you a better city. God, we love you and we ask, Lord, that people this, this morning would have the boldness and the courage that if they are turning their hearts to Christ, that would you come and talk to me afterwards and let me know so that I can pray for you. God, we thank you, Lord, that now we get to celebrate your most holy communion where we get to remember that it was our body that should have been broken, Lord, that it was our blood that should have been shed. We thank you, God, that we get to remember the death and resurrection of Christ. And as our band comes up and starts to um, lead us in worship again, God, we pray that you would settle our hearts, that you would forgive us of our sins. God, your word says to not take your communion in a way that is um, unworthy of the gospel. So God, we confess our sins to you now as, as the church. We pray, God, that you would just um, remind us, Lord, of that you are coming back and you are coming again. We thank you, God, that um, your word says in Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom.